You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, here's what we're doing. Uh, We're going through sort of a mini-series. We've been teaching through the book of Judges, verse by verse, and we're going through a mini-sort of series, a little break, on the theme of idolatry. Now, idolatry sounds like a, I don't know, sounds like something that happened a long time ago, or sounds like something that happens maybe in very primitive sort of cultures today, and we sort of in the Western world look down and say, well, you know, that uh, we don't do that kind of thing anymore, uh, but that's what people used to do. But as we're looking at the Bible, last week we started, uh, what is idolatry, an introduction. You could go to the website and listen to that message, and it'll catch you up for what's coming next. Uh, but as we, as we began to look at it last week, we saw, no, really, idolatry is, the, is not only bowing to a statue, it, it, it actually literally is that in the Bible, but it's more than that. It's when our hearts run to a substitute for God. It's where we go for an alternative God. It's where we go when God's not quite enough for us. That's our idol. So we all uh, struggle with this. And today we're going to look at the me idol. The me idol. Um, It's pervasive and it's easy to grow familiar with. Uh, We need God really to open our eyes to to see this this idol. Uh, A number of years ago, the insightful author David Foster Wallace was speaking at a graduation at Kenyon College. Uh, It's a graduation speech that I've seen quoted many times, parts of it many times quoted, but here was his introduction. Uh, He said, greetings parents and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks to the other and goes, what the heck is water? The point, Foster says, of the fish story is merely that the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. Later in the speech, he says, here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Self-centeredness, if it is natural for all of us, if it is our default setting, if it is sort of hardwired into our boards at birth, why is that? Why is that? Well, to understand why that is, we have to go back to the beginning of the story, not the very beginning, but after creation, uh, what is known in the Bible as the fall in Genesis 
3, when we go back to humanity's original rebellion, we will see that it's at that moment that the me idol really emerges. So before we read the text for today, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, I want to look a little bit before that and put it in context by reading Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. This is God's holy word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit, of its fruit, and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. Well, in this story, this account, we we see Satan is embodying the form of a serpent, and he is addressing Eve with Adam evidently standing by. And he he gives the first question in all the Bible. This is the first question in Scripture. The question is: Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how temptation works here. The first step is to question God's goodness. He's saying, did God restrict you from eating of all of these wonderful trees? They're all here and you can't eat of them. Well, of course that's not what God said. We read it in chapter 2. God said you may eat of every tree but one. However, Satan's goal is always to question God's goodness to question God's provision, his love for us, so that we will look for an alternative. Where is a source of good if God's not good? Where is a source of freedom if God's restricting? Where is a source of abundance if God is limiting? Satan tempts us to look for a substitute for God. Well, Eve foolishly enters into a dialogue, and uh, she responds to what Satan says. She says, well, no, God says that uh, we may eat of every tree but one. That's accurate. And then she says, we, uh, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, that's a little add-on. We don't read that God said you can't touch it, but she sort of adds that on there. And then the serpent responds by denying God's word outright. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Chapter 2, verse 17, God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan says, you shall not surely die. 
He, he rejects God's word. Notice that the first place that Satan challenges God's word is at the point of judgment. You won't be judged for doing what you choose in this manner. It's really no different today, right? That is the, one of the first places that many reject God. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? The question goes. That's a fair question that we need to answer. But that is the first place that we go. That's for another message, not for today. But people chafe at the idea that a holy God would bring any judgment upon his creation. And that starts in the garden. You will not surely die. Well, they eat, and the results are devastating. Their eyes are opened, they realize they've rebelled against the loving God who's given them everything, and they try to cover their shame by making fig leaves for themselves. Th this is how the me idol works. The, the me idol, uh, it, it is a temptation to move beyond God, to move beyond God's word and find our own way our own self-determined pathway to self-fulfillment. We see something that seems reasonable, and even though God may forbid it, we reject that because it seems good to us. So look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate. Forget about what God says. She looks and says, this is good. This is good to eat. Why would God restrict me? Why would God deprive me from what is good? Clearly good to my eyes. It's clearly appealing. It was to be desired to make one wise. It was a delight to the eyes. It looks enticing. I'll be wiser according to the serpent. Why would God restrict me? I think this will be good for me. And we need to realize, as the two fish who don't even recognize the water around them, that we swim in these waters. We swim in a cultural mindset that says, I am capable of determining what is good for me. I don't need an outside source. I don't need an outside standard. I sure don't need some ancient God in some dusty, out-of-date book. I am free to determine what is good to me. That fruit looks good. Therefore, who else can say that it's not good for me if I believe it is? I want that fruit. The me idol says that I can be like God and determine my own good. That's it. I can be like God, and then I will be the one who determines what is best for me. But God had placed this one tree in the garden to remind them daily that there is a difference between God and his creation. That that forbidden fruit stood as a marker that God is the one who not only creates and provides, but who establishes the objective true standard of right and wrong and what will, after all, bring fulfillment. God is the one who determines our purpose. God is the one who determines our meaning. In God, we find the longings, uh, the, the ultimate longings of our heart for satisfaction, relationship, peace. God is the one who provides, not us. So we must submit to him 
remembering he is God and we are not. James Boyce, in his commentary about this passage, says the following. What does the fruit symbolize? It symbolizes the fact that although the man and woman had maximum freedom and dominion in the earth, they were nevertheless God's creatures and enjoyed their freedom and exercised their dominion as a result of God's gift. It was to remind them that they were not God and that they were responsible to him. The tree reminds them that they are not God and a serpent comes along and says, you can be God. Not only is he God, but he is good. We didn't read Genesis 1 and 2. We started with the bad news. But if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, you will find that God is good. They have forgotten that, and they have believed a lie that God is restricting them, that God is not good, that God will not bring judgment. Yet all they have known for their entire existence is God's goodness. He created the perfect world with beauty and complete harmony and fruitfulness. They are flourishing in their relationship with God. They are flourishing in their relationship with one another. They are flourishing in the relationship, their relationship with creation. All is flourishing. All is well. All is perfect. If there was ever a couple, the only couple, that you could say they have everything, it was this couple. They have everything. The Hebrew word to describe this environment in the Garden of Eden is shalom, which means peace, but it means so much more than peace. It means life the way it was designed to be. It means God's life in abundance, where all is flourishing, all is well, all is at peace. God had graciously given them freedom to eat of every tree but one. That is not restrictive. That's indescribably generous, provided for them. He's not depriving them in any way. He is surrounding them with abundance, and he himself is at the center of it all. What more could they have? They have God himself and a free-flowing communion, unhindered, uninterrupted, unbroken by sin until chapter 3. We forget the goodness of God as well. When we seek to displace God and move ourselves to the center of our own world, we believe that a lie. We believe a lie that self-focus, self-fulfillment, self-determination, and every other hyphenated self-term we can come up with will bring us life. We think that life is found in me and my way and my desires and my plan, that surely the most abundant life would be if I could write my own story. We believe that. And yet me and my and self is not the answer to fulfillment. It is rather, it, it is rather what has been the cause of emptiness, suffering, and death in the world. The the Fulfillment of self, the glorification of self, the obsession with self does not bring life. It brings emptiness. And that is why the harshest, harshest punishment is to leave someone with nothing but self. If you've ever read anything, it's, it's fascinating, it's heartbreaking. If you've ever read anything about solitary confinement, you find that it is torment because people are left to themselves with nothing 
but themselves, alone with the God of me. It's actually the very nature of hell itself. The Bible speaks of being cast into outer darkness. It means being abandoned by God and given over to the God of me. The me idol brought death in the garden. The self-idol, the self-orientation, the self-obsession brings death to our relationships. And it will ultimately bring eternal death for those who choose self over the grace and mercy and love of the Lord Jesus Christ offered to all of us. Well, how does this idol show up in our lives? I mean, how do I answer that in a few minutes? Obviously, it shows up in a million places, right? But I want to just, I'm going to sort of pick four areas that I think it can show up. And then I want to talk about how we repent and how we receive power for change and walking in a new identity, identity as uh, followers of Christ. We'll never be free from uh, the God of me until Christ returns. But we can grow and change. And, and I see that all around me and people I know. Uh, that God is changing us and freeing us, oftentimes little by little, oftentimes two step forward, three step back, but freeing us from self to be free to live the life that he created, to love God and love others. One is seeking control. Control is a way this shows up. We, you know, we often minimize the desire to control everything. We, we sort of often can treat that like a mild personality flaw. Well, I'm just a controlling person. He's just so controlling. Well, that's the way mom is. She's just has to have control. But is that not the very heart of what Adam and Eve are grasping for when they grasp for Satan's throne, uh, for God's throne? Satan is telling them. It turns out they are leaning towards Satan's throne and serving self, but that was a slip. I meant to say as they grasp for God's throne, Satan's lie is you will be like God. They wanted to rule their own lives rather than to submit to the rule of God. They wanted total control of the garden. They didn't want to submit this area where they have to trust. I don't know what that fruit's like. I don't know what that uh, fruit tastes like. I don't know what I'm not getting with that fruit. But I can't control that. God controls the garden, and he's called me, he's called us as a couple to be his vice regents to rule under him over this garden. But they wanted to control it. Does that sound familiar? We can seek to control our world in so many ways. We can manipulate others to control them or attempt to control them. We can express our self-pity to sort of get our way and, and, and control other people. We can deceive other people so that the situation goes our way or that we have control so that we hold the cards and we are calling the shots. Sometimes we're given some measure of power in some situation, and we can exert our power or authority to seek to control some circumstance or some person. But the reality is we can't control a circumstance or a person ultimately. None of us can control another one. And, and here's what shows up in my own life frequently is that I find myself, I can be worried, I can be anxious, I can be fearful about a circumstance that's out of my control, we say. I, I would feel so much more secure if I could control that. 
rather than I can't control that, I'll trust God to control that. That's security. This is the spot of safety right here. I can't control that, I cast my care over on the Lord. He will control it for his glory and for my good. This is the place of idolatry and this is the place of danger. I must move everything around and control it in a way that I feel peaceful and I feel comfortable. But we all know what that is like to serve the God of me instead of trusting the God of the garden who provided everything and provides all that we need as well. We have to resign ourselves to this reality. God is good, and he has my best at heart, and he will even take my bad things and work them for my good and his glory. God's plan is always, I know it sounds trite, but God's plan is always better than my plan. And when they align, that's wonderful. But God's plan is best. Number two, control. Number two, hyper-individualism. Now, I'm going to say more than individualism because we're not denying individuals. We don't want to deny the value of someone's own individual personality and individual being. We want to recognize that. We don't want to subsume everyone into some kind of mass uh, that God just cares about the corporate and not the individual. But there is a hyper-individualism. It's the water we swim in. Hyper-individualism. This is where all the decisions in my life are based on a grid that says, how does this affect me? So the grid I use for my decisions is, how does this affect my preferences? How does this affect my comfort? How does this affect my plans? How does this affect my finances? How does this affect my convenience? When I live for the God of me, Everything that the world brings to me, all the choices that I make, all the roads that I take, every juncture is about what is best for me. What do I prefer? Whereas following Christ is about what would bring glory to God by his grace, what would bring glory to God, what would be loving towards others. Some cultures put the good of family or the good of, um, the, the good of the community, even the good of a certain tribe or a certain, their nation. Many cultures put the corporate good first. That's the ultimate good. That comes with its own set of challenges. But, but that's what much of the world through much of history uh, has practiced, especially in kind of honor-shame cultures frequently. It's about what would bring uh, good for the whole and what would bring shame on the whole rather than me. But Western cultures are almost universally about the individual, which has some strengths but has plenty of weaknesses as well. We live in culture which is about your dreams, your self-fulfillment, your maximizing your opportunities for yourself, you're developing yourself, you're being all that you can be, and obviously, biblically, we are called to steward our gifts, steward our resources, have a fruitful life. God's not, God doesn't celebrate unfruitfulness. God calls us to bear fruit. It's just what is the goal of that fruit bearing? What is the goal of using our gifts? What is the goal of being uh, fruitful in life? This kind of thing seeps into the church as well. And we don't see it. People from other cultures, I mean, they see this the minute they step off the plane. 
in a Western culture. And they see it when they come to a church that we don't see so often, that much of church world is about catering to the individual. The church exists to help you develop your spiritual fulfillment. And if, if any serving is mentioned, it's the church exists to, so that you can sort of broker your gifts and find your own fulfillment in using your gifts to be all that you can be in the church. And, and the reality is the church is not a collection of consumeristic individuals showing up so that this church can, uh, you know, among some professionals can sort of dispense goods and services to help everybody develop spiritually. That's not the picture. The church is not a collection of individuals there to benefit themselves. The church is a family, and the family is messed up. The family is filled with broken people, and the family is filled with annoying people. And when you're nodding your head, somebody else thinks you're the annoying person, by the way. But annoying people and needy people and burdens galore. The church provides a family to be a part of where we rejoice with those who rejoice. It, ha- it provides the highest highs of life and we weep with those who weep. It provides the lowest moments of bearing grief and sorrow in community along with others. Philippians 2 says that Christ saves us and gives us his spirit ultimately so that we would be changed into his image and his image is we are to count others more important than ourselves we are look we are to look to the interest of others and when we come to Christ he gives us that spirit to count others more important than ourselves to be in community in a family where everyone is called to live for the the good of neighbor But hyper-individualism, it it moves a different direction. Third one, I'm just going to call managing our reputation. I don't know a quicker way to say that. Managing our reputation. The me God resists, it resists me being known for who I really am. I would rather you know a projection of me. I would rather you know what I want you to know about me so that you like me, love me, want to be around me, worship me. None of us would say that. But I want you to be crazy about me. And so in order for that, I I need to portray an edited version of myself. I need to manage the information you have about me. I need to manage my reputation. The, The me idol leads us to fake it instead of leading with our weaknesses, admitting our needs, identifying our failures, asking for help, which says, I don't have it all together. I'm not omnicompetent. Asking for help. The me idol hates this because the me idol wants me to be, what's the words of the devil? Like God. All-knowing. I don't want to ask a stupid question because I want to be like God, all-knowing. I don't want to ask for help because I want to be omnipotent, all-powerful. I don't want to be thought of as incompetent. I can be everywhere and do everything. That's how this works, having it all together. We are our own PR firm promoting ourselves. This is the temptation of the me idol. We see this when we look around Frisco. I don't know about you, but, man, it looks to me like everybody's got it all together. 
I mean, intellectually, I know people have problems. They suffer. They struggle. But we forget that. Man, it looks like everybody's good to go. The city where everybody has it all together. Maybe that should be our motto. I love our city. I'm grateful to be here. So many blessings in our city. But is this not a challenge? Everybody has it all together. You scroll through your social media feed, everybody's got it all together. I mean, this introduces, sometimes I talk about social media, and I typically am critical. I am not opposed to social media. I think it has, I think it can be a blessing from God for many, many good things. Not only in overtly promoting the gospel, which it can, but also just in shared humanity, building relationship, getting to know others. Um, There's, uh, you know, sharing what's going on, learning. Uh, It could be a tool of learning. So there's many blessings. But is it not a temptation to manage our reputation? Many of the older people in the room, I count myself in that category. When we were young, man, you had three TV channels, 12, 15 radio stations, maybe AM and FM. So you had some sources, a few sources, and like one daily newspaper in town, two if you're in a big city. So you had like, these are your sources. Now everybody on the planet can have their own channel, it's called, a, it's called social media platform, to platform themselves. An entire channel devoted to me. My pictures, my content, my hot takes on politics, diet, health, COVID, anything. My hot takes. Not only my hot takes, but my hot takes against your hot takes. A platform for me so that everybody can hear from me and everybody can assess and hopefully love me. One author said that social media can become, doesn't have to become, doesn't always become. God doesn't want it to become. You don't have to become, but it can become the digital altar on which we offer up sacrifices to the God of me. Altars are not just in primitive societies where an animal is burned to some god. Altars are not just before a statue where people chant, burn incense, cut themselves, pray, whatever they do to their god. Altars can be digital where we offer sacrifices to the god of me. Riding high when I get lots of likes riding low when people disagree and don't like it. Managing our reputation. I'm going to give one more, very brief. I'm not going to talk much about this, but ungratefulness, I think, is one. Ungratefulness shows the me idol because rather than worship God for his provision, Adam and Eve, they're the first couple. They have everything, and they want more. So rather than saying, I've got perfection, how could a talking serpent offer me anything more than the God who created all this, the God with whom we have personal fellowship unhindered daily. How could anything be greater than this? They wanted more because they wanted to be like God. To ignore God's provision, to ignore God's calling, they had the best job in the universe. Farming, cultivating a garden with no weeds, with no sore back, with no pests. No mosquitoes when they sat out at night. And no arguments with their spouse. I mean, this is the life. 
but they're not grateful. They want something else. And the reality is, while none of us have that life, we don't live in perfection. We live in a broken world. But the reality is that when I am lose sight of God's goodness and demand that I have what I want, I'm putting myself at the center. And so whenever I'm ungrateful, I can pretty much know, you know what, there's something lurking up, and it's not God Almighty. It's the God of me. So what should we do with the me idol? Well, I think, I'd say the first thing is this. We recognize that God is God and he is good. We, we must be gripped with a glorious view of God. God is good. Look what he had provided for them. Look what he's provided for you. Look what, even if life is tough now, look what you are moving towards. Read the end of the book. Look at where he is moving his people into eternity. It's, it's indescribable. I mean, he has to give visions. He has to give symbolic, symbolic pictures of what it's going to be like in, in the book of Revelation because there's no human language or human experience that, that adequately is an analog to what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be with God Almighty. There's just no comparison. So God has been so good to us. We have to have a vision of his goodness, of his glory. And you know what? We, we need to be people that are cultivating gratitude for what he has done. One of the ways to squash the me idol is to elevate the true God by thanking him in our minds for what he's done. What practice could you embrace that would help you cultivate gratitude towards God? Some people do a gratitude journal at the end of the day. They just write down everything they can think of that God did that was gracious to them that day. Or maybe they do it in the morning, or maybe they just share it with somebody else. Maybe they just express it through the day. Maybe just express it through the day under your breath. Thank you, Lord, for this, for what you've done for me, what you're doing. Thank you even in this trial that you promised to work it for my good. I can't see that right now, but thank you that that's the kind of God you are, and you're always faithful and have never let me down. You are good cultivating gratitude it's not just turning from idols it's it's growing in our awareness of god almighty it's not just making idols be smaller it's the god of the universe capture our vision so that he is bigger in our sight as he really is the reality is this temptation for the god of me is coming every day it's coming every day and so every day we want to cultivate an awareness of god in the battle Kyle Adelman, in a book on idolatry, this is what he said. He said, in my brokenness, I feel the pull to worship me. I hear the whispered lie that Adam and Eve first heard. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, Genesis 3, 5. Every day is a trip to the orchard. Every day the snake is waiting. I must face this same choice. Will I worship God? Listen, this is so good. And find my true peace in this universe, the perfect place he has arranged for me. Or will I worship me and decide I can somehow come up with a better life than the creator of, of all could design? That's facing you tomorrow when you wake up. Today, am I going to entrust myself to God and thank him for the callings and opportunities he's given me and the script he is writing for my life, which is the best? Or am I going to wake up and say, I got an idea. I don't need God. I've got an idea of what really will bring me fulfillment. The choice is coming. 
But it's not, an, it's, not, it's not just turning from idols, as I said. It's recognizing the goodness of God, and it's pursuing Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater and more glorious than anything the world has to offer. So we, we pursue him. Jesus talks about discipleship as really pursuit of him in Luke 9. This is what he writes in verses 23, or this is what he says in verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What an offer Jesus makes. He said, you can find real life. You can try to grab everything that's out there, and you lose. You lose. Or you can embrace me and lose what's out there, and you win. Because you have everything in Jesus. He really says three things. One, two, deny ourselves. Deny himself. If anyone will follow me, he denies himself. What is denying ourselves? It's rejecting the serpent's false promise that you can be like God. Denying ourselves, it's not about self-hatred. It's certainly not about self-harm or something like that. It's about reorienting our life around Christ and others. Denying ourselves is about saying, I'm not going to follow my agenda. I'm going to submit to the Lord's agenda where there is real life. Difficulty, yes. Challenge, yes. But life. See, anything that is valuable, that is worth something, it's, it's worth giving up something else to gain. So Jesus tells it like this. Do you hear about a guy, he found treasure in a field, and he said, wow, this is amazing. So he goes and sells everything he has. That's costly. Gets rid of everything. That's painful. Separates everything of meaning in his life. Wow, that's emptying oneself so that he can buy the field and get the treasure. He'll give up everything for this treasure, and that's the way it is with Jesus. We give up me, deny myself so that I get something much greater. And it is costly to be sure, but it is costly for a prize. Too often we sell out for cheap Christianity. We want to worship me and worship Jesus. First of all, it's not possible. Second of all, it's not Christianity. Third of all, it's death. We want to say, I'm not worshiping me, I'm worshiping Jesus, and he will shape all of my life. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of Jesus, says it this way. Jesus' call to discipleship is costly. It is a reprioritization of everything, your relationships, your money, the way you do your job, the way you relate to your spouse, your kids, and your neighbors. You can't compartmentalize Jesus and his demands from the rest of your life. You can't say, Jesus is good for salvation, as your ticket to heaven, and everything else is in another drawer. Yet this way of living is very popular in the modern Western world. People can be a Christianized version of what they already are, without change, without cost, without transformation. This is the opposite of biblical Christianity. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, means that God is transforming me into something new, beautiful, Good and glorious because it's in his image, reflecting him. Denying ourselves means that we're not a religious version of who he's always been. I'm not changing. I'm the exact same person, but I do a few religious things in my life. That, that, that is not it. We're, we're denying ourselves. Where, where is God calling you to deny yourself, in essence, to make more room for Christ in your life? 
Is it a habit you're to deny? Is it the way you relate with your spouse, or your children, or your parents, or your coworkers? What is he calling you to deny? Is it how you spend your finances or your time? When we live out a new identity as kingdom people, Jesus transforms us to embrace self-denial for the good of others. We die to hyper-individualism and find something much more glorious, God and his purposes and his people and loving others, loving the world, people who need the wor- in the world who need him. We die to focus on me, and we come alive to the purpose of God life the way it was meant to be so deny yourself he says take up your cross daily we're to remind ourselves that we have died and risen with christ you know the verse we always quote at baptisms it's not just a baptism verse it's a life verse buried with christ in baptism raised to walk in newness of life we count ourselves dead in christ we died with him but we've been raised to something new glorious powerful wonderful following the living God of the universe, the Savior who gave himself for us. We need to recognize that we have died to the kingdom of me and that we find our life in him. So he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to find life? Then you take up your cross daily. That's how you find real life. What is God calling us to die to? Maybe to your reputation like we talked about earlier. Don't manage your reputation. Die to it. That's where you find life. Some preferences you have. Some selfish ambition that you have. Ambition is good. God gives ambition into the heart of women and men. God gives us ambition. But it's an ambition for his glory and not to the God of me. Maybe there's a dream you have that God hasn't really called you to. He's not providing for it. Maybe that's what you're to die to. Maybe it's to control other people in situations. I just had a sense there might be some in the room who say, I cannot come to this conclusion. I cannot control my spouse. I'm called to love my spouse. I'm called to serve my spouse. I'm called to uh, support my spouse. I am not called to control my spouse. I cannot control my parents. I cannot control my adult children. Let's change that. I cannot control my two-year-old. You can limit the space that they are in at age two. You can control certain things, but you cannot control their hearts. Lord, I cannot control this situation. I don't like this situation. I don't want this situation. I die to controlling that situation, and I trust you. uh, Deny yourself, take up your cross. Lastly, follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple, to follow him. What hinders you today from following him and tasting real life? What practice could you embrace to follow him more closely? How could you increase your awareness of him throughout the day, his purposes for you throughout the day? We we need to to break the idol of the God of me, which is a lifetime pursuit. We need a bigger vision of Christ. And we need regular remembrances, gratitude, awareness, humbling ourselves, receiving his empowering, treasuring him so that the things that tempt us look as they really are empty and lifeless.
We need a, what we said last week, an expulsive power of a new affection. I need a new heart. I need my heart enlivened to Jesus. And then I need to embrace practices, patterns, habits in my life that cultivate awareness of him, what he's done for me. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.